Hello and welcome to the Travels with Jim Hamill podcast. This is episode 12 on the Louvre. You may wonder right away, why are we even talking about the Louvre? Why do we need to talk about a museum? Can't we just sort of walk up, get a ticket, browse through it, see what's there, and then move on, just like every other museum you've likely ever been to in your life? And the answer is that because of the size of the Louvre, because of the crowds it attracts, that there's some things you need to know to make your visit enjoyable, maybe even tolerable, actually, because of the scale of some of this. Also, I think that by knowing a little bit about the building itself, which is absolutely magnificent, it rivals Versailles in terms of scale and opulence, and knowing a little bit about this artwork and where it all came from, I think it actually will make your visit a little bit better. So let's talk about that. First, let's talk about how we'll do it. And I'm going to do this in two ways. First, for my tours, how we're going to do it. And then secondly, if you're not someone that's going on my tour, how you might approach this. The main thing that I want to get across is that you really need to get your tickets ahead of time. If you get your tickets ahead of time, what they do is sell them for a specific date in time. If you do that, then you essentially skip the line. You go in the main entrance via the pyramid in front that you've likely seen. And the big line that's there, well, you don't have to worry about that. That's for people that are buying their tickets. You're going to go to a separate line for people who already have their tickets. And usually there won't be a line at all. You just walk up and walk in. So make sure you do that. It does require a little bit of advanced planning, but it is definitely worth it. And so you'll want to do that. Now, if you don't do that, you may be wondering if there's ways that you can sort of finagle your way through and get in. And not really, but kind of. There are separate entrances besides the, the big pyramid, which is the main entrance. You'll see signs for a carousel, the Louvre. That's sort of an underground shopping area that has a separate entrance to the Louvre. Its lines will be shorter if it's available, so you might try that. And also, you might try to figure out a time when the Louvre won't be so crowded. But the reality is, good luck with that, is all I can tell you, because it's just always crowded. I was reading a little bit about the Louvre preparing for this, and, you know, some places have these little meters that tell you, you know, how crowded it is at this time or that time. And in my experience, the reality is, it's just always crowded. One trick I will tell you, though, that has worked in the past, I'm not sure if it still will, is going at night. Prior to COVID, the Louvre was open two nights a week. Since COVID, it's only open one night a week. That's Friday. In other words, that typically the Louvre closes around 6 p.m., but on this one night, Friday, they'll stay open until like 9.30 at night. It used to be that if you went at night, the crowds were much less. And in fact, I took my family there on one of my first visits to the Louvre and there were hardly any crowds at all. It was great. I don't know if that still works though. I've read some things online talking about how the crowds are still pretty great there. So I'm, I can't swear that still works because there's only one night a week that it's open now. So it's, I could see that being a, an issue now. You might try that if you're someone that doesn't already have your ticket, but I'm not positive it'll work. Like I said, the main thing to do is just make sure you have a ticket ahead of time, plan for a specific date and time, and you should be in good shape. 
It's funny that we start off with that. We haven't even talked about what's in the Louvre yet or what it consists of, and we're already talking lines. But if you've ever seen pictures of the Louvre or pictures of the lines or walked past the Louvre in the middle of the day, it is ridiculous. The lines are enormous. So that's why we're doing that. But with that said and that out of the way, now let's talk about why we might actually want to go to this place. And there's two aspects to it, really, in my opinion. First is the building itself. I always say that if there was nothing in the Louvre, it would still be worth going and seeing because the building is just so amazing. So maybe we first talk about that and where it came from because I think you're going to have this reaction. I know I did, which is just looking at this thing and going, my God, where did this come from? How did this get here? Who built this? And the answer is it's complicated. It wasn't built all at once. It started out as a fortress in like the 1100s. Now, the current Louvre looks nothing like what was originally there. So, you know, don't look at what you're seeing now and think this was all a fortress at one time. You will see sort of the foundations of the old fortress if you go into the lower levels. In fact, they have one thing that's really cool there. They have an exhibit on the history of the Louvre and the buildings and all that. And it's in the Sully Wing of the museum. I should mention those real quick that when you walk in to the Louvre, there'll be three wings to it, each named after a famous French person. One is named Richelieu, one is named Sully, and one is named Denon or Denon. I'm not sure, but it's D-E-N-O-N. Anyway, that exhibit about the history of the Louvre is in the Sully Wing. You can see these old foundations from when this was just a, a fortress. And by fortress, I mean, think like a Norman castle. Think like Tower of London, that sort of big stone squared off looking castle. That's what it looked like back then. It only gradually over time turned into something different. While it started as a fortress, after a few hundred years, it then became a royal residence. When it becomes a royal residence, now the king is moving in his you know, books and his artwork. And in fact, the books were probably a more important aspect to what originally became the museum than the artwork. But like I said, they do start moving in the artwork in then. And we're talking like 1300s, 1400s, 1500s when this is going on. And French kings are growing in power and prestige. So there's more stuff coming here. A big shift happens, and, and it's funny how there's things that happened in French history, which you already know about, you learned about in school, but we never really think about how they might affect something like the Louvre. And one such example of this is Louis XIV moving his court to Versailles, which we all sort of know happened. That happened in 1682, by the way. Up to this point, the kings have this artwork in this castle. Well, Louis moves to Versailles. He takes some of the artwork with him, but not all of it. So some of it stays there in the Louvre. In addition to that, now, because the Louvre is no longer a royal residence, because everybody's in Versailles, they're looking at different things they can do to it. And as you're aware, probably, kings and even aristocrats used to sponsor artists. Well, they start using the Louvre as a place where they can sort of house these artists that are under royal patronage. So you've got these artists moving in. So now this building, this Louvre complex, is not only a place where there actually is art, but then there's artists working as well. 
Above and beyond that, there's no king. There's no royal household. So this is just a place where there's art and artists going on. So that's a big shift in how this building or this complex becomes a museum. It doesn't actually become a museum, though, for another 100, 150 years. And that was a product of the French Revolution, which you also know about, but probably never really thought about you know, how it might impact something like the Louvre. And the reality is, is that the revolutionary government is what actually opened it as a museum. Prior to that, they would allow the public to view art at certain designated times and designated dates, but it was very limited. It was actually in 1793 that the government opens this thing up and makes it officially a museum. It had 537 paintings and 184 other objects of art. So it's now officially a museum. Now, where did these come from and how did it get filled from there? I should mention right away, today the Louvre has, and there's different numbers, but it's pretty established that the number of artifacts and pieces of art in the museum is over 400,000 pieces. When you go in, they say you'll see about 38,000 pieces if you were to actually look at everything. And, you know, you never will. They, they do the math. And I, I wrote an article about this. Actually, I wrote two articles I should point you to on my website. One is called How the Louvre Became the Louvre. And it's sort of a history, like I'm walking you through here, about how this sort of building became what you're looking at today. And the other one is just called Visiting the Louvre. And it's more about the mechanics of visiting, how to get in, how to go about your visit, what you might see, and some other things like we'll talk about here. But there's a little more detail on those arguments, so you may want to check that out. We start, though, with just a few hundred paintings and pieces of art, and it, over time, has become tens of thousands on display and literally hundreds of thousands in the collection. So how does this happen? Well, it starts in the revolution, because when the revolutionaries take over and they arrest Louis XVI, and they ultimately kill him and Marie Antoinette. Well, they basically seized all these royal properties, and they seized what was in it, much of which was artwork. And so now they're taking that, and a lot of that goes to the Louvre, and it becomes part of this collection for this museum that they have now started. In addition to that, aristocrats tended to collect art and have these artifacts. That's who had this stuff. And this was a bad time to be an aristocrat in France. Many of them were being executed, and those that weren't were often fleeing the country and just leaving much of their stuff behind. So a lot of that gets seized, and a good chunk of it makes its way to the Louvre as well. Another aspect of this that's not so widely known is that the, the French Revolution initially was very anti-religious. And they actually evicted the Catholic Church from France for a period of years. It actually took Napoleon to bring them back some years later. Well, the church, of course, had a lot of artwork and artifacts and things like that. And much of that was seized by the French government. And a good chunk of that made its way to the Louvre as well. So the French Revolution actually creates this museum. And it actually stocks a big chunk of it as well. And it doesn't end there because... As you are probably aware too, one of the outgrowths of the French Revolution is Napoleon. He starts as this famous general and works his way in the government and eventually becomes the emperor. Well, like I said, he started as a general and you're probably aware 
he is known as, I mean, there's a reason we still talk about Napoleon today, that he was a military genius. He had a dizzying streak of success. And that starts right away. His first campaign was in Italy. Or actually, there was no Italy at the time, but there were these small sort of states or city-states or whatever you want to call them in the Italian peninsula. And most of them were aligned with Austria. And Austria was in a war with France at this time. They send this young general named Napoleon to go fight these Italians and ultimately the Austrians, which he does. And he wins every single time, of course. And what they would do back then, as you're probably aware, is when, once you win and you beat your enemy, then you would say, okay, well, you have to give me this territory or that territory. And, and you know, they would also make them pay money a certain amount. Well, what Napoleon started doing, too, is saying, and you have to give me 150 pieces of art or something like that. And, and he would force these Italian states to turn over paintings and other artwork. They'd actually take this art back to Paris and they'd parade it around to show, you know, how successful they were. And then a good chunk of that makes its way into the Louvre as well. Interestingly enough, Napoleon's next campaign after his Italian campaign is in Egypt. And now he knows he's going to do this again. He knows he's going to go get a lot of their artifacts and stuff and take it home. So he actually brings scholars and artists and whole teams of people to do just that. In fact, one of the guys associated with this is named Denon, D-E-N-O-N or Denon. I'm not sure how you say it. But he ultimately becomes the first curator of the Louvre Museum. And in fact, when we go there, actually it's next month now, you'll see one of the wings named after him. So he was very important to the Louvre. But that starts with Napoleon, and Napoleon is bringing these Egyptian artifacts back to Paris, and they go to the Louvre. And in fact, there's an Egyptian antiquities section, an entire section to the Louvre. Anyway, this goes on throughout the 1800s after Napoleon as well. It actually helps to have a king, and they had another emperor later, that just sort of have no qualms about doing things for the glory of their kingdom or their empire. And one of those things was get art and get artifacts. And so the Louvre is a beneficiary of this and continues to receive thousands and thousands of artifacts all through the 1800s. But this is a two-way street. And when you're on top, you can go to other countries and take their art and artifacts. But when you're the loser, you can lose a lot of them too. And France was a loser a couple of times in wars that might have been catastrophic, but really weren't. They were the loser of a few wars at the hands of Germany, one in the late 1800s, the Franco-Prussian War. But the Prussians actually never came into Paris. They bombarded it, but they never came into Paris. And so they did not raid the Louvre. But in World War II, of course, they did. The Nazis came, knocked the French out of the war, occupied Paris, occupied much of France. So why didn't they get all this stuff from the Louvre? It's a known fact that the Nazis were, in fact, sending trainloads of art back to Germany during this occupation. But the reality is that the French, prior to hostilities with Germany, 
and during it were actually taking the artwork and artifacts out of the Louvre and hiding it. Many of the famous artifacts that are there today were removed from the Louvre, taken, hidden somewhere else, and only returned after the war. So that worked out pretty well for them in what could have been much, much worse. Anyway, since that time, the Louvre has just continued to grow and grow and grow and add pieces and more and more people come to it. And the Louvre is now, I think it's the most visited museum in the world. It has to be one of the largest. If you just tried to walk around the Louvre and go see everything, well, that would be a big mistake. There's 403 rooms in the Louvre and... If you just walked all of them, it would be something like 14 kilometers or about eight miles. So this thing is enormous. And that leads to the next thing, which then is if you aren't going to approach the Louvre like you would every other museum, which is to say you just sort of walk in the front, walk through where they have all the stuff, and then go through the gift shop and leave, then how do you approach it? And, you know, there's some different ways. Because you're not going to want to spend all day here. Most people aren't going to have the time. The average trip to Paris, I read somewhere, is like three or four days. On my tour, we're going to spend about six. So double that. But even still, we don't want to spend an entire day at the Louvre. And I think we'd probably get tired of it anyway. That leaves us probably about three hours to see what you want to see. And that's pretty average, typical. I would do two things. First, I would look at the discrete items that I wanted to go see. In most people's cases, that's going to be four things. It's going to be the Mona Lisa, and I haven't even mentioned anything that's in the Louvre yet, but you're pr probably aware at least that the Mona Lisa is there and has been for a few hundred years. Incidentally, it was bought. There was no sort of nefarious dealings that brought the Mona Lisa to the Louvre. Da Vinci actually left it to one of his or perhaps his main helper or assistant and that guy held it for a number of years but then ultimately sold it to the king of France who then put it, I'm not sure if he put it in the Louvre or not or if, it, he, if it, that came later but that's how it ended up in the Louvre. So, and that's probably the most famous painting in the world and you probably already know it's there but that's one thing you will for sure want to see. It has its own room. They usually cordon off the line to get to it. So basically you'll be walking around the museum. You'll see one of those uh, zigzag roped off lines. And if you want, you can sort of go through that and then get an up close and personal view of it. You can also just sort of look at it from afar or kind of go up around the side and see it that way. But if you want the up close and personal, there'll be another line usually. Anyway, a few other things you might want to see are a couple of statues. One is the Venus de Milo. You may be familiar with that. That's a statue of Aphrodite from something like 150 BC. There's also another statue called Winged Victory, and that's a statue of Nike, and it dates back to 200 years BC. And the other sort of really super famous item is called the Code of Hammurabi. It's actually 4,000 years old. It's a big stone on which were carved a number of laws from ancient Babylon. These are sort of the big four items or maybe the most famous four items in the museum. And you're probably going to want to see those. They're also in distinct parts of the museum. So you kind of got to make a plan for getting there. Here's what to do. First of all, when you go into the Louvre, 
in the main center area. This is where you go in that stupid pyramid and then there's a big underground open area in the middle. In there, they'll have a kiosk and you can just walk up and get a map and it'll, it'll show all the different rooms and everything. All the rooms in the museum are numbered. So you can always look at the number sign and then look on the map and figure out where you are. They've divided the whole thing up into sort of sections. You know, they have statues here and paintings there and, and different artifacts in different places. So you can tell where you are that way as well. And I actually have on the web pages I was telling you about earlier, the actual room numbers for each of these four items. And so if you wanted to just go see them, you could just look up which room number they're in and then go see them and just sort of browse and, and look at things along the way. And that's a viable and valid way of seeing things. I used to think of this as sort of the ugly American approach to visiting the Louvre, but I don't really think so. I mean, the reality is, like I said, your time is precious in Paris. You just don't have a ton of time to spend at the Louvre and you can't see everything anyway. So you might as well do a more targeted approach. And that leads to the second aspect of this, which is if you do want to linger, you do want to spend some more time, at least don't try to see everything. Don't try to just walk the whole thing because you just won't get anything out of it. What I would do is pick one section, maybe two, and just focus your efforts on that and really try to learn about that particular subject or, or type of art or artifacts or whatever. And I think you'll get much more out of it that way. In any event, it will save you a whole lot of walking. And incidentally, if you get tired, there are some cafes in the Louvre that you can stop at. And, you know, there's everything from just little counter service ones to full sit down places that are really nice as well. So if you get uh, tired or want to take a break, you can definitely do that. And there's one final thing I want to talk about with respect to how to approach your trip. And it stems from the fact that different people move at different paces, that different people have different interests, different people are going to want to linger over certain pieces longer than others. And then not everyone's going to want to stay the same length of time. And if you try to travel around in a pack or something like that, then invariably you're not going to go at the speed that's most comfortable for you. Frankly, that's my criticism if I have one of doing a guided tour here. You're going to get a lot if you do a guided tour. And, and they have French tour guides that'll, you have to be French, by the way, because uh, that's a law that in order to speak to a group in the Louvre, you have to be a tour guide, a licensed tour guide, and they only give licenses to French nationals. So you have to be French. But if you got one, you'd essentially be going at their speed and you'd be looking at what they find interesting. And then you'd be having to put on a show of finding this really interesting so you didn't appear rude and the whole thing's a little tiresome. So I recommend doing your own thing at your own pace with a targeted plan of attack and then just having a meetup place when you're done a cafe or something like that. Actually, where I really recommend, provided the weather is nice, is that if you go out to the Tuileries, and that is a sort of park or garden that is just outside the Louvre. It's a beautiful garden. There's pathways there. There's benches there. There's actually four cafes in the garden as well. So you can just hang out there and wait for the rest of your group to get done. And in fact, that's what we're going to do on our tour is that I'll just be waiting out there for people as they come out and then that way nobody is stuck waiting on somebody else everybody's you know having a reasonably good time and i suggest you do that for your group as well 
And I think that'll add to your enjoyment of this whole thing. So I think that about does it. We've talked about how to get there and avoid the lines. We've talked about how to approach your visit. We've talked about what's in it. And we've talked about how the buildings got there and even how to leave so that people can work at their own pace. I hope this adds some value and some enjoyment to your trip to the Louvre. One thing you might want to do is check out the Louvre website before you go. There's a wealth of information there, not only about the Louvre building itself, but about all the individual artifacts. You can actually do basically a room-by-room -room tour and see almost everything in it. And they photographed all this stuff and you can really take in a lot of this stuff and learn a lot before you go. This is one of those deals that the more you know before you go, the more sort of enjoyment that I think you'll get out of it. Hope this helps and adds something to your trip, and we'll be back with another one of these soon.